Brian is on a mission to fundamentally change the way the world operates, to drive economic freedom. How do people have time to try to divide us and focus on these things that aren't about our mission? The only thing that everybody at Coinbase can be assured of that we share as a common framework is our pursuit of the company's mission. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. We have a huge show on deck for you today. We got LJ Brock, the chief people officer at Coinbase on HR Heretics. We covered so much ground with LJ from the mission-focused article, also known as the No Politics at Work document that dropped in September of 2020. This is right after George Floyd and Coinbase took a lot of flack for this in the media. And also LJ talked about taking a lot of flack for it personally, how that played out, what they learned and what it's like now seeing a lot of companies adopt their policy. We also talked about why Coinbase doesn't negotiate with new hires and also how they disproportionately reward top performers. We got into a little bit of the relationship between LJ and Brian, Coinbase's CEO, and why LJ believes every exec has to have a crucible moment early in their tenure to see if their relationship will survive long-term. Finally, we got into the Talent Density article that dropped in November of 2023, how Coinbase came up with it, and why I think it's going to be the future of how companies evaluate their talent. This show is epic. It's one of my favorites we've ever done. I think it has the opportunity to change a lot of minds on how we evaluate people ops and where people ops goes in the future. So please like, subscribe, and share. And without further ado, here's LJ Brock. LJ Brock, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. All right. I want to get right into it. And I want to talk about September of 2020. And that is when Coinbase came out and banned political discussions at work. This became like a huge thing in the media, a huge narrative. I think that's actually still going on right now in tech. Talk to us about how that decision came to be and how that's played out for you guys. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for reminding me about September 2020. Was, uh, <laughs> um, well, I think if I'm going to answer that, let me if you indulge me, let me let me zoom back a little bit on sort of the history. So I joined Coinbase in February of 2019. And I think that upon reflection, when I look back, one of the views I have is that in the years that led before I joined and that when the company grew from 200 to say 700 people, it was about 700 people when I joined, that I think Brian Armstrong, our CEO, got a lot of advice from a lot of great, very well-intentioned executives that worked with him over that period of time. These are all extremely talented people. They had great intentions. But they were giving him advice that I think was probably I would characterize. I don't know if Brian would ever characterize it this way as sort of like mainstream. This is how you build a tech company advice. This is how you're going to win talent. This is how you're going to be successful in the marketplace, in the talent marketplace, Brian. And I think the result of that was that for several years, you know, the company drifted like a few degrees off of like the compass that Brian had. It wasn't really overt. It wasn't like, oh my God, we're wildly off direction. But if you're, you know, two to five degrees off for three or four years in a row and you grow from 200 to 700 people, pretty soon you look back and you're like, wait a minute, we're, there's a substantial difference here between the way, you know, I would like to operate this company and the way it's actually operating. And, and so part of the way that played out, even before sort of that September timeframe was, you know, as we were having sort of the classic all hands that a company in the tech sector might have, 
there was these grandstanding moments where people were coming up on the in the mic and trying to you know get gotcha moments where they were giving me some tough question or Brian some tough question things like that and I think that that sort of you know didn't sit well with Brian and the reason it didn't sit well with Brian and this is when I think one of the beauties of working with founder owners is like Brian is on a mission to fundamentally change the way the world operates to drive economic freedom right the, 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 when you think about sort of the mission we have as a company, it's a life's work. It can almost seem insurmountable at times. And I think what he found is like, how do people have time to try to divide us and focus on these things that aren't about our mission? And these are even just smaller little sort of gotcha moments, let alone sort of, you know, larger moments that we were facing as a society. So when you fast forward all the way to, you know, the, the terrible incident with George Floyd and everything that was going on around social justice movement, what I think we saw was that then there was an expectation for a lot of companies in the marketplace, at least a, a tacit expectation that companies were going to focus on things outside of their mission. And I think that's where the moment hit for Brian, where he was just clear as can be that, look, the only thing that everybody at Coinbase can be assured of that we share as a common framework is our pursuit of the company's mission. And we don't have time or the luxury of sort of focusing on things outside of that if we're going to take on this truly massive task that we're trying to tackle. And so I think in that moment, you know, for Brian, this was not just about sort of being apolitical. And to be clear, sometimes this gets lost when we focus on it. What we're saying is we're not going to be political and focus on politics around things outside of our mission, things we can't impact. We clearly do take stances on things that can impact crypto today. And maybe we'll talk about that later. But but I think for Brian, this was a moment to sort of reshape the organization and say, hey, the company I want to build is going to be comprised of people who are bound by a relentless focus on achieving our mission. And we're not going to focus on what divides us or got you moments. We're going to focus on this sort of core area of driving economic freedom. And so that's sort of the underpinning of how we got to that moment of the blog around being mission first and how we took that stance. I want to talk about post the decision and what has happened, because from my view outside of Coinbase, at that moment in time, the narrative was in the media, they're never going to hire anybody again. Who would ever want to work at Coinbase? They don't believe in diverse views and having tough conversations. So walk us through what actually happened after Brian had the post. Yeah, well, so just even, even as we're going through like iterations on the post and getting ready to post it, you, no, no truer words have been spoken, no, Nolan. I mean... I had friends that were like, you'll never work again. <laughs> you need <Yeah>. to resign. <laughs> yeah. like, you're, you're, you know, you're blacklisted. Like, <laughs> this is it, LJ. Um, I mean, good, trusted friends, friends who are CHROs, friends who are in CHRO search. I mean, they were doing it from a watch out for yourself kind of thing, right? And there were plenty of people who were saying, hey, you're not going to be able to hire. The company's just dead in the water from this. And, you know, I, and we may want to talk about this, but one of the things that I was adamant about was, yeah, hey, if we're going to do this, we're clearly resetting the expectations of employment at Coinbase. And so I was really adamant that we had to offer an opt out to the to everybody in the organization and, and say, look, we're changing the expectation of maybe why you joined. We honor that. If that is the case, you know, that's on us. We we're sorry. We hope everybody's going to want to be here. But we're going to come back next week, and this is going to be the way we operate. And if you can't do that, then we apologize, and we're going to give you a generous severance. But if you can do it, we're really excited to have you. And that, I think, was a seminal moment for us, because I think being able to take that stance and having that sort of conviction then helped us, Nolan, really get more comfortable with the idea that we will fight through some of these other headwinds that you were talking about. And so what did ultimately play out is a couple of things that we saw. And to be very candid, to my surprise, because I wasn't sure how this was all going to break either, we found that there was a tremendous amount of people who actually flocked to an environment where they were going to be free from the burden of like division in the workplace, that they wanted to come to a place that had a why that was going to be focused on the mission. 
We found that it did not in any way. We look to be very clear. We didn't say, hey, we're not going to focus on things. We said we're going to focus on things we can control. We may want to talk about this later. We've taken a lot of steps, I think, that we're very proud of that create a more equitable and diverse environment inside the company. And we found people that really appreciated that. And so the shorter answer is all the doomsday that we thought was coming didn't happen. We actually flourished after that. And then I would say, you know, the epilogue for me personally is I could create a side business on consulting with CEOs and CHROs who call me still today and say, hey, we would like to do something like this, but we're petrified. How did you do it? And I would say that what we've probably all seen is that in this world where as the economy has sort of been a little jittery and as companies have been facing like how do they handle and navigate this a little bit more dicey environment? We've seen some companies sort of retrench from the stances that they've taken. And yet we've stayed as steadfast as we always were. So my shorter answer is there, and this is one of the things I've just found in working for, you know, Brian and generally for founder owners is, you know, these guys are right a lot more than you give them credit for. And you got to have some faith in their vision. And so all kudos to him. I think he saw a vision that I didn't see, but I was willing to stand behind and execute. And I think we're better off for it as a company. We talk a lot about just the power of, you know, the communities and the and the HR communities. And the, to your point, how tech companies are supposed to work. And you mentioned, because I've been there, you're going to do something that's so fucking stupid. You're going to lose your job. How do you get through that? Because that's not easy. Like what got you through just keeping going? You know, especially years ago, did you say, you know, I'll just go work at, you know, somewhere else? Like, what gave you comfort in continuing to do that and have that courage? Because that is not easy or common. Yeah, that's a good question, Kelly. I think a couple of things. I think one of the things, and I don't mean this flippantly, I, I, I think one of the things you want to do when you work for a founder leader, at least, and I tell this to my team that's like, you know, I want to develop another set of CHROs and they're always asking me for tips. And I say to them, like, you know, you want to get to your near death moment with them as fast as possible. Don't be afraid of that. Like run head first into your near death moment where you two are going to go head to head and you're going to figure out, are we going to work together or are we not? And if you can have that kind of moment really quickly, then I think you come out. If you do come out, look, there's a chance you die and you got to go get another job. And, you know, I don't, that's scary and I get it, but I think it's better to go through that and then find another one that you can work at. And there's a good chance you'll get through the other side. And when you get through the other side, the trust and the connection that you have helps you see through like, oof, this fear that people are painting at you. So I would say I was fortunate that Brian and I had already had our near-death moment uh, <laughs> together as CHRO and CEO. And, and so by the time we got to that kind of tense moment, I just had faith in our relationship. I had faith that he had my back. I had, I wanted to have his back. And I say the other thing is, you know, I just, I genuinely, I think Brian's a really good guy. He's just a good person. And I think a lot of the things that, you know, you see portrayed often, uh, you know, in the media, I suspect for certainly I know at Coinbase, but at other places, if you really know the person, you don't have those fears. And, and I just genuinely think he's a great guy and he's somebody I wanted to work for and strive and get through this moment. So it helped me get through what you're talking about. And I think, you know, my advice to people is like, if you don't have that kind of connection, then you're going to have that moment where you're like, oh, I think I just got to go get another job. That is so interesting. I just wanted to highlight that advice. Run into a near-death moment as fast as you can because my first head of people role, it was the opposite. Like you tiptoe around the founder, you try to build relationships by being a yes person. It is the 180 of that. And I freaking wish I had heard that 15 years ago. And my last question is, can you suss that out in the interview process, because we talked about this with other guests like JT Nolan and where people like take these jobs and they go, oh shit, like three months in. Or is it luck? Or, or did you just get lucky? I, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to tell you, I, I didn't figure it out in the interview process. Like I'd love to tell you, wow, I'm some genius interviewer. And I knew that I had figured this out with Brian. I mean, you know, Brian and I spent a fair amount of time together in the interview process. And, you know, it's a CHRO and guy who grew up from recruiting. I'd love to tell you that I think you can design interview processes that do a great job of a realistic preview. And, and I want to say we really try really hard at Coinbase, but 
I think what you can do is mitigate risk. You can ask a lot of questions. You can push yourself to be more transparent and, and apply that 180 thinking in the interview process and see how they respond. If you're willing to like risk that you might not get the job, which I guess is better, but you can do things like that. But I'm not sure that you're ever going to know until you get in there and, and it just happens. Right. And, but I, look, I think that the thing is, if you free yourself of the idea that like, that, you know, dying in that moment is bad, then it's not so scary, right? You're like, look, it's healthier for both of us if, if, if we get through this. And I think usually when you go into it, I don't mean like reckless abandon, but when you're willing to be that vulnerable and get to that moment, I think more times than not, you break through to a healthy other side and you get a good understanding. I think the tiptoeing that you experienced, which I've seen too, that's where it just gets really painful for the long haul, right? Hey, everyone. We'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. There's a world where your CRM is powerful, easily configured, and deeply intuitive. Atio makes that a reality. Atio is a radically new CRM built specifically for the new era of companies. It's flexible, easily configures to your unique data structures, works for any go-to-market motion from self-serve to sales-led. Atio automatically enriches your contacts, syncs your emails and calendar, lets you create powerful reports, and quickly build Zapier-style automations. The next era of companies deserves more than a one-size-fits-all CRM with an outdated UX. Join OpenAI, Replicate, Eleven Labs, and more. Try Atio instantly at atio.com, that's A-T-T-I-O.com, and tell them Nolan and Kelly from HR Heretics sent you. I think one of the things that gnaws at me a little about the HR community is that there's sort of this drive for like homogeneity. Like there's one way to do this, right? There's, this is the way you're going to keep employees. This is the way you're going to motivate people. You know, I've worked at consensus driven large tech companies. I've worked at a hedge fund. I've worked at Coinbase. Like I can tell you there ain't one way in my book. And I think you know, figuring out different ways help is, I think, a beauty of our system and one that I wish we'd lean into more sort of in our profession. It's a really interesting discussion around diversity of thought, because that's actually one of the things that I've been crushed for in the past is that I don't believe that there is room right now in the HR space for diversity of thought, especially when you're doing things that are way outside of the norm and what's established and what people say is currently okay. But you guys keep doing this. And that's what's really interesting to me. And so I actually wanted to get into like, you guys don't negotiate. You guys went remote first faster than anybody. You guys just dropped talent density. We'll get into those things. I want to, I actually want to get into like, how do these things come about? Like, is it you coming up with the idea? Is it Brian coming up with the idea? How do you get, the executives on board? Do you guys get the second level on board? And then how do you roll it out to the company? Because these are unique. I think Coinbase, I've said this publicly a few times, is one of the few companies that is innovating in the people space. But innovation in the people space can feel very scary, given that there is an established way of doing things. So how do you guys roll this stuff out internally? How does it come to be? Well, look, I would say of the things you listed, most of them really started with Brian's is the spark behind the idea. The one that probably I really sparked more was around the, the comp model and the single pay target. But a lot of these really big ones is mission first, remote first, talent density. Start with Brian saying to me, Emily is our president and COO, three of us talking about this, then maybe more broadly with the exec team, like, here's something I'm thinking, here's something I'm seeing. LJ, can you help me think about this more? Can you help blow this out a little bit more? And I do think it's interesting. Look, I love it. I, I love our innovation model. I love the pushes we get. I got to be honest with you. It's a little bit addicting. Like we, I get to a point, it's like an adrenaline rush. If we haven't come out with some radical new stance after a while, I start getting a little bit like, you know, hey, what's next kind of thing. So, you know, part of it is you have to be a little bit of a junkie for it, I think. But I also, I got to be honest, it's also hard for our team sometimes because they've, you know, look, many people have come from other environments that sort of would traditionally frown on some of the things we've done. So even just within the HR team, we often have to reprogram people to think more radically 
to be comfortable with the idea of letting go, you know, the things that, I don't know, whatever these best practice or, you know, whatever this is out there, right? Um, so, you know, look, Brian generally generates the idea. Then he says to Emily and me, let's blow this out a little more. We have some tools we use here. You know, one that I think is incredibly powerful. Uh, we have this really simple thing called problem, proposed solution. And it literally is, you write problem, and it's like one or two sentences, and then proposed solution. And it's maybe another paragraph or two. One of the things we value at Coinbase is clear communication. It means don't say in two words what you can say in one, you know, that kind of thing. And so you would be shocked at some of the major things we have launched that came from a half-page problem-proposed solution that Brian penned, shared with me, and we began to edit in the Google Doc together with a whole bunch of comments and just went back and forth and iterated on. By the way, it plays out great in a remote-first company. That's the way we do these kind of designs. We don't even have to be in a room together. We can be working sort of asynchronously and doing these things. The ideas get generated. We really push ourselves, I think, to be very pr first principles thinking. Like, I think one of the things that you always have to push your HR team when you're working with a founder, I would say this, like, you know, this is Brian's life's work, right? Like, you <laughs> and so he's just not going to accept like, well, this is the way we do things. Like, you have to go all the way down to the why are we doing it? I'll give you a real-time example. We're debating right now. We're having a dialogue about sort of reinstituting the nature and the depth of reference checks. And most of my team is like, reference checks are useless. They don't, they're really time consumption. They're low signal. Da, da, da. Well, if you go back to Brian's principle, Brian's principle, and I know you want to talk about this separately, it's like, we want to build a talent-dense environment. I want every hire to raise the bar at Coinbase. In that lens, there's a spot for reference checks. You may have to remake what a reference check looks like, but Brian doesn't care if it adds five hours on average to the, or a day to our time to fill. You know, it's like, I, I, who cares about our time to fill going from 45 days to 47 days? Did we get somebody who's gonna create economic freedom, who's gonna co contribute to our mission? That's what matters. So, um, you know, we go through a lot of these iterations with the team and then we generally share them with the executive team for feedback. But uh, look, I will say another aspect of our company is this idea of a DRI, a directly responsible individual and directly responsible individuals are expected to get input, but they are not expected to get consensus. And so a lot of what you see in these things that we've produced, the reason we produce them, I think, relatively quickly and implement them successfully is because someone gets inputs, but someone makes a call, whether that's me or Brian or Emily. Um, and then when we make that call, we move into implementation mode. And then to the last part of your question, look, I think we've done varying jobs of bring the org along, if I'm really candid about it. I mean, I think Brian probably operates a little bit more in a like, you know, I'll post a blog and everybody internally and externally will read it. <laughs> that's where we'll get to. I have tried to inch us along a little bit in the model of like, Hey, let's get our VPs and our senior leaders, you know, understanding this blog and our, why we're doing it and the thought behind it. Let's not, we're not taking it to committee. We're not going to derail it, but let's take the finished product and make sure they, we've answered their questions before we launch it so that when they get employee questions, they're armed. But no, I will say we don't have like, you know, 11 layer deep change management plans on how we're going to incrementally roll this out through the company. Yeah. The expectation is, hey, we've made a decision get on board and commit with the decision and gamble with me. Because what you said earlier, I, I learned this working with Henry Accarta and Henry and Brian sound very similar. Henry was right so much more than I expected. And I think a lot of that was just coded in me of best practices and how things should be run. And then, you know, when he comes up with an idea that's orthogonal to that, it's very scary. But it turns out he's right way more than he's wrong. And I think a lot of this has to do with just as a leader, just trusting that we're going to gamble on this thing. And most of these decisions end up being two-way door. And so if it doesn't work, we can go back and, and do it the other way again, right? Do you guys talk about two-way door and one-way on one door decisions? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the beauties of Coinbase and, you know, Brian and Emily emulate this through the organization is like, look, if it doesn't work, we'll kill it and start over and do something different. Like we're not so wedded to a decision that like we're, we're changing time, you know, for all of time. Now, look, there are decisions that have greater implications than the rest. So, I mean, 
we took a really pretty fast move to remote first and we saw our population just explode from mostly being all within a commuting distance to downtown San Francisco to being all over North America and all over the world. That's a little bit of a hard one to unwind, right? So there are different ones where you you have to be a little bit longer committed. But uh, in general, we we don't use a two-way door phrase, but the mindset is absolutely one of like, we're going to go try this. And if it doesn't work, we'll do a retro. One of the things that's beautiful about Coinbase is this idea of blameless retros. And really, when things don't go well, just getting to the root of why didn't it work and then making a change and doing something different. LJ, I have maybe a devil's advocate question to what you two were just talking about. And believe me, I love a good gamble. I love change. I love doing things differently. However, you have a lot of change, a lot of innovation, a lot of doing things differently in Coinbase in an industry that's also very like change, chaos, new. Do you have any challenges with that? I mean, because I could see employees getting a little jumpy at the combination of both those things. So I just was wondering any challenges with how you operate internally in the industry that you're in? Yeah. I mean, look, I don't, not without challenges. We certainly get in employee surveys and just in conversations like, ah, you know, this place is demanding or it's hard or the pace of change is frequent you know, we're all human. People people get tired sometimes, right? I do think one thing I think, again, Brian does an absolutely phenomenal job of modeling is this idea of like, we sprint and recharge. So one of the things that we did and then unwound, for example, is during COVID, we did four weeks of recharge where the whole company shut down, one every quarter. And then we still had PTO for people to take around that. You know, we didn't expect people to take eight or 10 weeks off a year, but we said, hey, we know it's not all going to work. And the concept there that Brian has is like, yeah, this is demanding, but there's not, there aren't a lot of great examples of really impactful things in the world that weren't demanding. But one thing he does is he's great about modeling. Like he sprints for a quarter and then he takes a week off and he's on PTO. And, you know, I hear all the time about executives modeling the behavior they want. I always share the story of like one of the first weeks I started, you know, I literally, I don't know, it was my second or third week and we were having this big outcome and Brian's like, I'm on vacation, you deal with it. I need to recharge kind of thing. And you know, at the moment I was like, Oof, but looking back, I'm like, how awesome is that? That like the CEO is saying, I, I need to recharge my button so I can play for the long haul. So I would say, Kelly, like we try to embed two things. One is we try to in- embed a sprint recharge culture. And the other thing, and this cuts across everything where we have talked about and will talk about. And this is why we publish externally, et cetera. We try to be unbelievably overt and transparent up front about who we are and who we're not so that when you come, you are intentionally joining the craziness. Like, you know what you're getting into, right? <laughs> totally. If I someone pressed me for the biggest theme in this whole damn show since we started, it's like every episode, Nolan, it's been clarity of identity and... That is the foundation of everything. And it's, we just talked to DHH from Basecamp last week, and so interesting. They have the sprint culture as well. It's literally in their handbook around these sprints, and I, I actually really love that concept. But it's because people can vote with their feet. Yeah, so that's the other thing. Look, I'll just say, like, I think we realize, we, look, we want to keep top talent. We spend all our time talking about top talent. We use that phrase more than any. But I think we also realize that, like, I, you know, I tell people, you want to be a Coinbase during a period of time that you are interested in the hockey stick portion of your career, where it is going to be hard up and to the right. And while that, while you are here, we are going to give you incredible experience and opportunities and rewards for that. And there may be a po- moment where you want to plateau. And that we understand that. And that's just not, we're not going to plateau. Company's not going to plateau. So you may have to vote with your feet. And I, by the way, I, I, one of the things I tell people is like, I did that in my career. I worked in a hockey stick kind of environment. Then when my daughter was born, I went to sort of plateau environment for 18 months because I wanted to just have a little better balance. And then when we got past that, I went back into the hockey stick environment. I think that's empowering people to own their careers and make better choices for themselves. Great, great chronology, by the way. I decided to go into venture into the number one role when I was 16 weeks pregnant. So I should have literally <laughs> like... Pick the opposite of what you should be fucking doing. Exactly. Uh, All right. So I want to talk about talent density because in my mind, I think we're going to look back on the talent density article, very similar to the mission-focused article in five to 10 years and say this was a seminal piece in tech. So for the audience, I'll give the the high-level view. This came out in November of 2023. 
And there's a few principles. Number one is that you guys are now doing cognitive testing, which is you know more structured assessments. You're increasing the percentage of hires from internships. Brian or Emily, your CEO um, and COO, have to approve all hires. You're giving now real-time feedback for performance management. And executives are being held accountable for talent density in their orgs. So just walk us through that. This is a lot. I mean, this, I can't even imagine like how long it took to like roll this thing out and get alignment on this thing. Walk us through the soup to nuts on how talent density came to be. Again, I think a little bit of a similar story to the one I shared at the beginning around just, you know, the evolution of the culture and mission first. I think Brian and Emily have always had this, the, the strongest desire to have just a truly elite talent organization that have a really high bar. I mean, we tinker with our performance literally every six months to try to true it up and make it a little better and get better outcomes. We've done the same in hiring aspects. And I think we eventually got to this moment where I would say that Coinbase has sort of been a leading indicator. Like we went off the cliff on bad news before everybody else did. I think we've been starting to see things get a little better earlier. In the throes of sort of the, as the market, you know, FTX blows up, Binance has challenges, just general crypto. So I think one of the things Brian was like, I believe crypto is going to continue to shape the world. And I believe we are the blue chip player in crypto. And I believe we offer the very best career opportunities to people who want to be here. We should have the highest standards possible. And we should be using this time to consolidate the quality of talent in the organization just and then use that learning to be an ongoing sort of way that we operate going forward. So, you know, that dialogue sort of percolated in the background with tweaks and tweaks and tweaks and then culminated with, a no, we're going to take a strong stance here. And we're going to say to our org, hey, to win over the long haul in what is still, you know, in crypto, I don't know, you know, my analogy is we're still probably in the bottom of the second inning or something like that, right? Like we're in it for the long haul and, and, we're going to need really, really committed and elite talent to win. And we want to continue to raise the bar in the organization. And that I think that the blog and, and the piece was really just a sort of pulling together themes that we had discussed in disparate ways into a cohesive thing that said, this is the stance we're going to take. And whenever we do this and we publish it, you know, again, to your, to your comment, I'm like, you can't imagine the alignment. You know what gets alignment? When it goes up on the, on the blog site and everybody's talking about it. You get alignment. I mean, there's not, you know, suddenly like, hey, that's the way we're going, right? So, um, you know, I think, you know, that one, by the way, was one that was pretty collaborative. I mean, Brian had some things. Brian's always been a strong believer in, you know, regular perf environments and 360 feedback. And I was one who was really a big believer in in the early in career or, uh, programs. And, you know, so this is one where we went back and forth and had a lot of iterations as a, as a small group on designing. And then, but I think agreeing with you, we see this as something that's going to shape the next, you know, five years or more of Coinbase. And, I, you know, as something that's really going to be central to the way we build the company. And I'd say one of the things, by the way, just I say is like, look, we went. Other thing I would say to people to think about is, you know, my journey at Coinbase is I joined. We were 700 people. We peaked at 7000 people. Today, we sit at 3500 people. One of the things we took away from that moment is even with the best of intentions, were we as did we hold ourselves to the highest standards possible on the talent bar? And our answer was probably no. That's not to say that we didn't, everybody who joined, everybody who's been here, we thought was amazing, has great talent. But were we holding the standards as high as we wanted to in the moments of run-up? No, I think we would honestly say we probably started removing too much friction from our processes in the name of scale. And we wanted to take a stance right here and right now and say, we'll never do that again. We're going to prioritize the quality of our talent over anything at this point. That's so good. The I want to get into... So I, I agree with a lot of the talent density article. I think for me, like the percentage of hires from internships makes a ton of sense. The CEO approving all offers, CEO or COO approving all offers, naysayers will say, well, how does this scale? And it's going to move things slower. And it turns out that you know we did this at DoorDash through 4,000 employees. And Tony was Tony was the only person who did it. And was able to turn stuff around within 24 hours. 
Like that's never going to cause a problem. The one I think a lot about is real-time feedback. And I think it's, I think it's aspirational. I think it's what we should be doing. I have yet to see it done in a way that is actually giving people consistent feedback. And then also like, you know, real time is great, but it's also helpful to take a step back and get a little bit more of a macro level view. So how are, how are you guys doing real time feedback? Yeah. So just real quick, before I answer that, I will say, I share with you uh, in our offer approval, Brian and Emily, either one of them can approve it. And I always tell everybody, maybe similar to you, if you're worried that Emily Choi is going to slow down your hiring process, you haven't been on Slack with her. You can measure her response <laughs> in like the nanosecond. Like, I mean, yeah. it happens, right? That's not going to be a problem. That's not going to be a problem. Really, fa- uh, really fast on that point, LJ, because you're, you're now bringing back stories for me. One of the things that we did is we actually put the hiring manager and the recruiter on the thread for offer approval. And because we did that, they were able, like, they got to see exactly how Tony was responding and the questions that he had. And they were in charge of responding to those questions. Do you guys do the same thing? Yeah. So we have, we have the entire exec team, all the recruiters in there, not all the hiring managers, but then the exec team that is sponsoring the hire underneath their org gets to answer or get the questions or the recruiter. And I mean, look, I can tell you, I mean, so good. I'll tell you this. So we just went live uh, last week. Uh, and, and I know my head of recruiting is telling me like, he's like, dude, you, you know, he's like, people are scared shitless. Like they are rethinking <laughs> every packet, every candidate. He's like, you know, he's like right now the pipeline's ground to the halt, but I can see how it's going to pay out because people are like, literally our bar has gone up overnight. I mean, yeah. you know, like yep. I, I, I will say we had a scenario where the very first candidate that we submitted in this was rejected. I think that candidate would have been hired the week before the process went live. That's us tangibly raising the hiring bar. And I think they were rejected for the right reasons, but absent that process, I think they would have gotten through. So, so to your question on feedback, look, first, let me say it's aspirational. So I don't, we are not like, oh, we've got this one um, baked. I think there's a couple of things at play here. Um, At the first level is one thing we're doing is we're going to move to beginning this year, a quarterly check-in on both, you know, basic, same old, same old, the what and the how in our numeric system. And we're going to give everybody a rating on a quarterly basis. The, the reason behind that is like, I don't know about you, but I cannot remember what the best of my direct reports were doing 11 months ago when I try to do the annual review, right? So the, the cadence and the pace of our business, the chaos that Kelly talked about, everything means that this thing happens in I'm not even sure 90 days is fair, but let's just, you know, we're going to truncate it into sort of a natural rhythm. I haven't write it down, take notes, and I look at it and I'm like, what what happened eight months ago? <laughs> what did I say? What, what was I thinking? I, I, I mean, I'm like, that happened this year? I can't even remember, right? Yeah. So so I think we're, we're, we're firstly saying, hey, we're going to try to make sure that minimally, I mean, nobody's going to put me in the hall of fame of CHROs off this statement, right? Like we are minimally hoping that every employee gets one reasonable conversation from their manager once a quarter on the what and the how in their performance and some tangible examples of that. That to me is like table stakes. The fact that that's like our minimum thing is almost, you know, not a great moment. Like we're just trying to get there and we'll work up from there. Now on the real time thing, this is one of those moments where I'm, I'm all in on Brian's right usually. And Brian has a belief, frankly, that perf systems suck and, you know, he has this aspiration of maybe starting another business someday to help like companies do this better, but that we can use a Slack-based tool to get better real-time feedback on how people are performing in a 360 basis. And so we're in the middle right now. Brian and his chief of staff are actually sponsoring this. They're out like taking bids, building mock-ups, working with our team on this. I'm like, how are we going to build this? And then how are we going to implement it? I will stipulate up front right here, right now, this will be the hardest change management we have to pull off at Coinbase because our population doesn't love this idea of like, oh, we're going to grade, you know, they look at it as like, hey, we're going to grade everybody after every meeting or every interaction or are we heading down the Bridgewater path? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. You know, I think Brian operates from a different paradigm and I think he operates from a paradigm that, Actually, you know, and this is, I think, part of the job of, a, you know, my job, Emily's job, like to help people really understand the context. I think 
Brian actually is more worried about managers making unilateral decisions than getting in using math, getting lots of data points on someone and saying, hey, the math says this is an amazing employee. Why should I let this manager sort of unilaterally rate him a one or a two, right? Without a lot of, and not, and push that. So, you know, again, it's what we said earlier, Nolan Kelly, like you got to flip everything on its ear. Like I think employees see this and they often think of it as like, oh, it's going to create this tough culture. Oh, it's designed to root me out, all that. I would say at its core, Brian is saying the law of numbers says if I can capture more and more of the quality of your deliverables and your interactions and how you're operating, the, the, the math's not going to lie. And you should be more fearful of one bad actor as a manager, you know, triggering some bad outcome for you than you should the law of large numbers if you're a great employee and you're really delivering a lot of value. Yeah. It's so funny. It's like the, these employees have the same trap. They fall into the same trap that a lot of us fall into is the same old ways of doing things. And it's just ingrained and they can't see anything else. So you almost kind of like treat them like consumers, right? They have the one use case in their head with this and it's to screw me over. It's like, Hey, there are eight use cases for this new program. Let's talk through them. And th- that's really the change management versus the blog post. What I'm learning, though, Kelly, from this conversation with LJ is that when you talk about the intent and the problem that you're trying to solve. So, like, for example, like manager bias in performance is one of the biggest problems that we've all faced because they're typically closest to the work. They have 80 percent of the packet that's put together for promotion. And that's the thing that we're looking at. Well, what if your manager just doesn't like you or you guys don't get along or there's some sort of weird fit with the manager and they have all of the power to stop your career? And LJ, it's so interesting the way that you frame it because you know when you frame it as, hey, we're trying to get more data points to ensure that we're eliminating the manager bias from holding you back, that completely reframes it in my head. And I'm hoping that it does for the company as well. Yeah, I think if we build it the right way and we connect these dots for people, it will. But I think Kelly's point is well taken. Like, it's one thing sharing Brian's intent. It's another thing, like, unwinding, you know, I got 25 years of work experience telling me this kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It's the same, like, formula that you all use around why you do things. It's explaining the why to everyone else from a first principles approach and bringing them along with. And, like, ironically, that stops the town hall kind of anonymous like dings, you know, because now they understand the why and all these things. So they all go together in this beautiful system when it's working correctly. So, so LJ, Kelly and I have been talking a lot about work trials and this has been coming up, you know, most famously at Basecamp, also at Linear. There's more and more, especially early stage, smaller companies that are doing work trials. The one piece about the talent density article that for me felt like it was missing, because you it, basically what you guys are trying to do is increase signal, like how good is the person, like, and, and what do we know about them? And then to hire like the best person for Coinbase. The, the thing that's missing for me is like, well, why aren't you actually like getting to work with these people? So did you guys talk about work trials? And is that something that you guys are exploring? Yeah, there's two aspects to that. One, I would say we actually have at the end of our interview process for almost all of our roles, we actually have a, a, a work trial, we call it. And it's, it's a really small, you know, I don't want it, to, it, it doesn't rise to some of what you've, you've highlighted, but we give people a prompt. We ask them to lay out like a, a really basic sort of presentation on that prompt. And then they spend 30 minutes presenting it to us and for 20 minutes presenting to us and 10 minutes feeding, you know, fielding questions and answering those. It's not all the way to a day in the life or really running a whole project. But I will say even that 30 minutes gives incredible signal on like, is someone going to be right for our company? Are they going to think on their feet? Can they communicate in a way that's going to command the attention and respect of our leaders? And so that little window really does help. And then I would say secondarily, Nolan, my whole thing on the emerging talent or early in career talent is really two things. One, um, I think the, the... the primary adopters of crypto are earlier in career and we need more of those people in here building products for them. And then two, I think it's the best work trial there is in the world. I get interns to come work with us for 12 weeks 
And it's bi-directional. I mean, again, it's not one-sided. I want to be as transparent as possible. I keep pushing the team. Like, I want these interns to leave here knowing unbelievably firmly what it's like to work at Coinbase so they can intentionally opt in or not. And I want us to have, I want to instrument every moment of their time with us so that we get all sorts of signal on whether they're going to be successful here or not. And at the end of that 12 weeks, I think where the signal matches, where our signal says this person's going to be successful and where their signal says, this is the kind of place I work, that bi I want to work, that bi-directional work trial, that's going to be the very best outcomes we could get. Now, the problem, you know, I'd love to do that across the board. The problem is you're probably not going to get me to resign from Coinbase and come do a 12-week, you know, stint at another company, that kind of thing. So it's really hard to do in the professional workplace. But that's why I'd like to see, you know, in this emerging talent, just become a much, much bigger segment of our population. So true. You had also mentioned earlier that uh, post the mission first article, I think the quote you had was you are, you are trying to be more equitable and you are now more diverse. I'm assuming that how you're doing that is actually by going a little bit more junior as the talent pool then opens up, but talk us through like exactly what that means and how you were able to achieve that. Yeah, I would say the one, so just zooming back, one of the things we always said is, look, we're going to focus on things we can impact. We're not going to make statements that are virtue signals or things that are outlandish and that we'll never achieve. You know, we're not going to tell you that, you know, 50% of our software engineers that we hire are going to be women if only 25% of the graduating computer science majors are women. Like, we're going to try to make very realistic goals in our organization. And we're going to try to focus on programs that really have a massive impact. And one of the things that I think was the biggest impact we've had is way back, we, um, we moved to a single pay target. And we said, without exception, I can sit here and tell you, we have never since implementing this made one exception, we said, hey, one of the ways that we can impact diversity, one of the ways we can remove sort of some of the bad things that potentially happen in the world is by not saying, hey, we're going to perpetuate any compensation differences that, you know, women or minorities or things experience coming out of school and through their career and then continue to perpetuate that. We're going to say, when you come to Coinbase, there is one number we pay anybody who joins. And that's the same number that everybody gets once they're here in that same level. And then what we're going to differentiate your compensation on is how do you, how do you perform at Coinbase? And, and then we focus and remove bias from that process and we back test it and we make sure there's no disparate impact. And so what we've seen is we have a world where I think that has been the biggest differentiator. I, I, you know, one of the things I talk to people about or what I hear from our employees is, you know, I was worried about mission first. I saw that. But when I heard that, hey, you're making pay this fair for us, I wanted to work at that company. And so, yes, Nolan, some of it's been we've hired earlier in career people. Some of it's been that we've gone remote, to be honest with you, right? I mean, just to be really candid, I don't think the population that can afford to commute to downtown San Francisco is the most diverse population in the world. So it turns out when we can hire around all of North America and all the world, diversity suddenly gets a lot better. So um, look, we have a long way to go as is any company on this, but I think when you think about smart programs that you can control versus things that just you know garner some headlines but don't really move the needle, that's another one of those things that we've seen really play out really well for us. Yeah. I want to make sure we don't lose this. You said you haven't made one exception to the single pay target. That is incredible. I mean, there has to be a story where you attempted to make that exception. I mean, how, how do you hold that line? Yeah, I've tried that in the past and it hasn't worked because it's so hard to hold the line because you get so much pressure from managers who already have time bias, who need to make hires and get shit done. And so it's a great question, Kelly. How do you do that, LJ? So I think this goes to a lot of the things we talked about. I think one, it's like get to that near-death experience. I think two, it's about who's the DRI. Uh, so one, I knew Brian and Emily when we implemented this and the executive team had my back because we decided we're going to do it. So when we decide to do something as an executive team, we don't decide to do it except when it doesn't work for us. We decide to do it. When it's inconvenient. Yeah. 
I was the DRI or, you know, I, I, maybe Emily was a DRI, the D, but in, in any event, we decided as an exec um, team that we, you know, this was a decision. I think, um, and I think by the way, we are just inherently convicted that we shouldn't be paying people for what they delivered at their last employer. We should be paying them for the impact they had here. So the other thing we did there is we moved to this, you know, really enhanced pay for performance model where our top performing people get one and a half and two X their target grants. It's extraordinarily differential. Damn. And Brian and Emily and the company and the board, everybody really believes in differentiated outcomes. So, you know, you got to take the, for the lack of a better phrase, the good with the bad. If you want to be able to do that kind of high impact outcome, you can't be compromising on the front end, right? It's just... Yeah, it's very, very rare, especially in this industry. So kudos to that. LJ, as part of the single pay target for new hires and then promotions, I think that's the way that you guys think about it. You guys also eliminated the four-year stock grant in favor of the one-year grant. And I've talked to a lot of people in comp. And what I hear from people in comp say is like, well, that's good for the company because they don't have as many shares outstanding. And it's good for the employee if the stock price goes down, but it's not great for the employee if the stock price goes up. How do you guys think about that? And what was the genesis around that decision? Actually, something's totally different for us. It's a little bit of what goes back to the chaos that, that, that Kelly was talking about. So look, incredible volatility in crypto, right? I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, we were valued at eight billion in the December before we went public in April, and we went public for I don't know ninety, ninety-five billion. So in that five-month run-up, right, it's just crazy. Um, and then, so you know, we've seen our stock go from up to three fifty, four hundred, down to thirty, back to one fifty. What we were thinking about, look, yes, we wanted to preserve our burn. We want to get the greatest return on our equity possible. We're, we're a for-profit business. We've got to return shareholder value. We've got to manage these things. I, I don't want to deny any of that. But what we were also thinking about is like, hey, we want to insulate our people a little bit from that volatility, right? So in a world where I could give you a four-year grant at 350 and then you might spend the next two and a half years with the stock at 75 that's going to cause, you, you want to talk about stress and chaos, that's going to talk unbelievable stress and chaos in the system. So what we found is by moving to this model of annual grants, and then that, yes, helps us on, our, on, our, on the burn rate, but then we take that savings and we're redeploying it into other programs for some multi-year grants. We're still working through some of this right now. We did it a little bit before the market went down. We're, we're revisiting it now. We have other multi-year programs to reward people as well. So we're finding a mix, but on a regular basis, we're saying, hey, we want to provide you ownership. We want you to own stock, but we don't want you to necessarily have to ride the wave of the public markets and how they're valuing a crypto company. We want to give you the chance to sort of get pricing that's closer to the market at the time you get your grant. And I think in general, that's, look, some people love it. I think most people have enjoyed it. Some don't. But in general, I think it's been a huge net win for us. And I would say it's another one of those examples. Brian came up with this one when he had heard about it. And I was like, you know, all my instinct was like three, four-year grants are the way the industry works. But at this point, I'd already been like, Brian's right. I'm going to figure out why he's right and go make it happen. And I think generally more people have moved in this direction over time than I would have anticipated. Yeah, it's because like Stripe did it, Lyft did it. And this is all, they did it before the market cratered. And my take at the time was like, this is not employee friendly. And it turned out I was wrong because markets go up, markets go down. And if the market goes down, you actually have a much bigger problem around how you're going to reset all of those people. And, and a lot of companies are having to do that, especially late stage private companies whose valuations haven't been reset yet. And that's really, really bad for employees. So I, I've been learning watching you guys kind of like do these sorts of programs. And especially in an industry like crypto, I think it makes a ton of sense to where it's like, hey, for the standard population, we're going to do an annual grant every year. 
but like you're mentioning, you know, at Google, we had these things called founders grants for like the elite, elite people. And those are like massively sized and over a different time period for folks. And so you can come up with a, a mixed design that enables you to have the standard population grant and then also like for the very top performers, disproportionately rewarding them. Exactly. And, and Founders Grants, one of the ones that we've sort of benchmarked and there's some others as well. That's how we're thinking about it. LJ, have you all ever played around with boxcar style grants, delayed grants based on a certain price? I'm curious your take on that or your experimentation with that. We have it as of yet, really. Um, could be something we look at. Um, but no, it hasn't been in our tool toolbox yet. I just thought of it based on controlling that volatility. I did have one more question. I wanted to pivot a little bit to your leadership style, LJ, and just your your background and just the, the difference in cultures from the Red Hat. Shout out to Raleigh, by the way. I spent a lot of time there with Pendo. Sitting in Raleigh right now. Oh, is that where you are? I'm in Raleigh right now. Yeah. Your style, right? We talked about kind of the dwindling supply of chief people officers out there, HR leaders, and how you are creating more. How are you grooming? How are you developing? How are you pushing your team so they can go out and do what you do one day? Yeah, it's great. It's actually, you know what, at this point, I, I tell people, I don't know, I'm probably somewhere, depending on the day, either on the 18th tee or the green of my career. You know, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but, you but, and um, me both. <laughs> yeah, but I'll tell you, the days where I feel like going and doing the back nine all over again are the ones where I get like really energized about like helping the next generation of great CHROs and. I gotta be honest with you. I mean, plug to, I don't want my team to get a pillage, but I think I got four or five people that are going to be a hell of a lot better CHROs than I've ever been um, right now. And look, I think it starts from a couple of things. I think what's my style. I think one is um, you got to get enjoyment from, from seeing other people surpass you, right? You got to, you got to, you got to, you, you have to find like this passion for helping people unlock um, their potential. And I think that's one of the great joys I have in doing this job. Um, I think you got to be willing to look far and wide. I'm a big, big believer in heterogeneous teams. A couple of my key directs never worked in HR before they came. One was the head of biz ops. One was in uh, growth marketing. A couple of them are from traditional HR backgrounds. Like you bring that melting pot together. It makes everybody stronger. Um, and then, you know, back to one of our themes on this, like intentionality. So I try, we're not always great about always doing it, but on a pretty regular basis, we have a once a week CHRO roundtable. I would think of this as like in the experience exposure education model. It's like the exposure model where I spend 30 minutes sort of debriefing with them on something that only I experienced this week as a CHRO, how I thought about the problem, how I tackled it. What was the upshot of it and debate with them how they would have approached it. I do a lot of rotations. I, you know, I, I just, I was just talking to Emily. I moved two people into rewards to run rewards who didn't have a zero, had zero days background in running rewards when they got there. And she just was telling me like, you know what? I thought you were crazy. I thought we had to have a reward expert. You were right. It's worked out. I move people around a lot. I love that moving around. I mean, if you want to be in the seat one day, you kind of go around the world. You have to have exposure. You have to. You, you got to move around, right? So, I mean, look, I would say simple thing is one of the most enjoyments I get is helping people on that trajectory. I try to get people who are driven and have an interest in doing it. And then I try to create a lot of moments for them to like lean in and grow at that rate. And I'm, I'm looking forward. I know I'm going to be sitting back one day, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, but, and I'll be watching them publish blogs and watching them create new things. I mean, I, I, I take great pride in these folks. They're amazing. Yeah. It's awesome. That's so cool. And it's, I, you know, I, I heard a leader once say my legacy will be measured by the people that I've grown and what they do next. And that's always stuck with me. And that's the way that I've always thought about it too. LJ, like this has been an absolutely incredible conversation. Kel, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to discuss with LJ? No, I just, I 
lo- love the development of the people team. Someone asked me at Penda what my what my goals were joining there three years ago. I said, I want to see six people on this freaking team be chief people officers in the next five years. Thanks, Nolan. This is great. Yeah, I love it. Hopefully, they're, are they all in Raleigh? We need more chief people officers in Raleigh. We need a cohort <laughs> I, here. But, you know? yeah. I'm going out yeah. next week. Let's get a drink. But awesome. um, some some are, yes. But yeah. like you, the, the heterogeneous team, they're all over the place. So. Yeah. LJ, cannot thank you enough for the time. I learned a ton in this conversation. Our audience is going to be blown away. I think that this is going to do maybe the best numbers we've ever done. And we've had some amazing guests on the show. Thank you for your candor and your transparency because, you know, Coinbase has this, this media narrative that basically all of us, that's all we have access to and getting it, you know, directly from you on how things are actually done there in this sort of honest way was very illuminating for me. So thank you for the time and thank you for the transparency. Yeah, thank you for the platform. It was awesome talking to you guys. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.